All right, our speaker for this session is certainly no stranger to you guys. Uh, we've got, once again, Tyler King. I know he's spoken in front of you guys several times before. Uh, but Tyler is truly someone that I look up to in a great deal for so many reasons. I really started to get to know Tyler while I was in the youth group and while he was in the youth group. And Tyler was always someone that I just looked at and saw, man, Tyler's a cool guy. And I want to be like him in any way that I can. And certainly more of that has been shown to be the case as I've gotten older, as I've continued to see Tyler mature and to grow in his life. Tyler was a very skillful worker. Uh, he worked as a welder for several years and actually received certification in metallurgy and welding tech from Lincoln College of Technology back in 2014. So he's very good with his hands. He's a great mechanic as well. But what I admire most about Tyler is because he's got such a great passion for the Lord and his work. He's currently got three different degrees and he's working on a fourth. Not that he would ever try to use that to show how great he is himself, but because of his desire to serve the Lord, his desire to grow in his own relationship with God and to share that with as many people as he can. Tyler is someone that I look up to immensely because of his passion for the Lord. And you guys, as I already know, you guys know, are going to be very enriched by Tyler and the lesson that he brings. And I hope that you will continue to listen to what he has to say and grow yourselves from this great example of faith. Tyler, come preach the word. Preach the word. I appreciate that, Matthew. Uh, very kind words. Introductions are always a little intimidating because... Uh, they hype you up, and then you get up here and preach, and typically people are let down a little bit, so I'm going to try not to let you down. Um, we're going to be talking about, as you can see, all things to all men today. And this is kind of an interesting subject, especially in the world that we're living in, especially in the year that we're living in. Uh, for, the, for the record, we're not going to be talking about COVID. Um, so if you came here to listen about a story about becoming all things to all men with COVID, I promise you we won't touch on that, so you're welcome. Um, I know I've heard enough stories and enough sermons about COVID, so we're going to spare the details on that. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians. Um, it's such an honor to be speaking to you today. Um, I loved youth ministry. When I graduated uh, here at Bear Valley, I went to West Tennessee, which I'd never even been to the state of Tennessee before, uh, but to go work with Corey Sawyers. So I'm pretty bummed out because Corey Sawyers is preaching upstairs, and I'm down here, so I obviously can't hear him. Um, the good thing is it's live streamed up there, so I can listen to that later. Uh, and I would encourage you to do that as well. But I went into youth ministry, loved working with youth. And the primary reason for that is because I have very fond memories in my youth. I have a ton of good memories, a lot of good stories um, that I won't share right now. You can ask me about those later on. I've got some great embarrassing stories of Brett and Ryan Phillips and even Matthew Height. So uh, just ask for those later and, and we'll get in touch. Today we're going to be talking about all things to all men out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, You've probably heard this phrase somewhere in your life before, all things to all men. But to truly internalize this statement, all things to all men, we really have to dive deeper into the book of 1 Corinthians. We've even heard this phrase brought up, brought up in presidential speeches. We've heard it brought up uh, in commercials. We've heard it brought up in sales pitches. But it all comes back to what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians. Now, I think it's an honor and a privilege to speak to you because you're the generation after me. I'm on the very tail end of millennial, and 
for the reference or for the record, millennials hate being labeled. Uh, we hate labeling other things. And so when people say you're a millennial, I hate it. Uh, but I'm going to call you Gen Z because that's what you are. Um, so here I am labeling and being a, a hypocrite in that. But Gen Z is so fascinating to me for so many different reasons. And, and tell me if some of these things are true about you. Number one, Gen Z are digital natives. Now think about that for a second. You probably can't remember a time in your life before cell phones, before computers. Now, being on the tail end of millennial, I'm right there with you. Uh, I have very few memories of what life was like before cell phones or what life was like before computers, but I do remember what life was like before where they are now and how uh, progressive technology has become. But you're living in a world where you are digital natives. You've got so much power at the disposal of your hands. It's amazing. Um, and so I'm so excited to see what Gen Z is going to do to the world. Uh, you're also, also very financially minded as Generation Z. And part of this, I think, is is due to the, the Great Recession in 2008. In 2008, I was in middle school. My dad lost his job. He was in, tech, uh, he was in technology and communications with uh, telephones. He lost his job in 2008, and it was very traumatic for me being in, in middle school because I realized life is going to be a little bit different. Things are going to be a little bit tighter around the house. We can't eat out as much. And so as a 13-year-old in 2008, I was thinking, this is pretty traumatic. Um, that finance... Uh, tragedy has hit me to the point where when I graduated high school, I said, I'm going to make as much money as I can uh, because I don't want to put my future family in that position. And I was also greedy and I'll be the first to tell you that. So I pursued a life of welding and welding tech in the oil and natural gas business, uh, which is lucrative for money. Um, so if you ever want to make a ton of money, go into oil and natural gas and you'll, you'll make that. So Generation Z is very financially minded. Generation Z is also politically progressive. Politics, to me, when I was in middle school and high school, I didn't care about politics. Uh, but now that politics are becoming a mainstream source of media, uh, Generation Z is becoming more and more politically progressive and politically concerned. Uh, more people are getting their degrees in polyscience than what they had previous. But one of the coolest characteristics about Generation Z, about your generation, that I love, is that you are searching for authenticity. You are looking for genuine, authentic relationships. And so typically what that looks like is you have a friend or someone that you might know, and if you share some commonalities with that person, then you become close friends and you build these authentic, genuine relationships, these friendships. And that's so powerful because those friendships will take you on into eternity. But one of the stumbling blocks of that is when you look at a phrase like becoming all things to all men. Sometimes that creates a fake relationship in our mind because how can I possibly become all things to all men? And I'm going to show you that there are five ways that you can do that. But we first must ask the question, what is the gospel worth to you? How valuable is the gospel in your life? And I don't know if you've ever been asked that question before. Maybe not. Maybe you have. But I want you to think about how valuable is the gospel, maybe in monetary terms and in terms of money. How much would you buy the gospel for? Would you spend your entire checking account or saving account if it took that to uh, buy the gospel? Would you give everything that you had for the gospel? Would you give yourself for the gospel? There's a couple of interesting quotes that we're going to look at here in just a second, but I want you to be thinking of that, that question. How valuable is the gospel to you? And I know that I'm speaking to a relatively young audience, and that may be a very out-of-left-field question, but I want you to hold on to that question for a moment. Let's dissect this a little bit more, all things to all men. So the problem with that phrase or that statement is we're missing the second part. So all things to all men gives us the what. 
And we can't just have just the what. We can't isolate it to just the what. What was Paul talking about? Why should we become all things to all men? Paul would say, by all means, I might save some. Now, that's the second part of all things to all men. It's not just becoming all things to all men for the sake of becoming a a naturally friendly person. It's not becoming all things to all men to gain a popularity award. It's not becoming all things to all men to win best camper of the year at Quinnier or wherever else. Becoming all things to all men by all means that I might save some. That was Paul's mindset. He said, I'm going to do whatever it takes in my life to save as many as I can. Now, you might be familiar uh, with uh, the first century and some of the persecutions that were coming from the first century. Sometimes we isolate the first century. We say, oh, the Christians, they went through their persecution, and then we kind of move on. We, we blow over it. Um, I've been involved in some graduate work, and that doesn't mean that I'm smart. It just means that I'm a glutton for punishment and that they just say, read these books and then regurgitate on a paper. That's all great. So if anyone tells you, hey, I've got my PhD, all that means is that they've read a lot of books and they've written a lot of papers. So don't take it at first glance as this dude is brilliant. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. Um, but what that does mean is that you read a lot of books. So I've had to read quite a few books concerning the first century, persecutions, things that took place there. Now, I know... What can fire up uh, Generation Z or what can fire up the youth of today other than to read an excerpt from the first century? Bear with me because this is fascinating stuff. So I'm going to read this from the book, uh, and you can follow along if you can see that. Um, But this is being written by Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius, interesting name. If you had a friend named Ignatius, you'd probably think, where in the world are you from? Um, But Ignatius was one who was willing to do whatever it took to spread the gospel. In fact, we have our New Testaments, and our New Testament ends at about 96 AD, give or take a couple years. Um, And then we don't really have anything other than that. God kind of leaves it up to us to to finish the rest of of history for Scripture. And so the first century dives into this deep... this deep, horrible time of persecution, and we have people like Ignatius who knew how to write, and they would write down some of their experiences. So Ignatius writes this. Now now listen to this real quick. He says, even now as a prisoner, I am learning to forego my own wishes. All the way from Syria to Rome, I am fighting with wild beasts by land and sea, night and day, chained as I am to ten leopards, meaning I am from the detachment of soldiers, who only get worse the better you treat them. But by their injustices, I am becoming a better disciple, though not for that reason I am acquitted. What a thrill I shall have from the wild beasts that are ready for me. I hope they will make short work of me. This is Ignatius. This is a person who we have recorded in history. He considers himself a disciple of John. Now, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, who wrote the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John, and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now, before I lose you, this is a person who took the value of the Gospel, and he said, this is worth everything in my life, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to communicate that gospel to whoever it might be. And so Ignatius serves as this great uh, example. And then here's another example for you. About 100 years later, um, the Roman Empire was really ramping up, and, and they were seeking to destroy the Christians. Why? It's because Rome was seeking all the power in the world at that time. They were a very greedy nation. And so they saw the Christians starting to rise up. The Christian church was growing like a flame. It was like a forest fire just taking over the earth. Well, Rome said, we can't have any opposing nations, even though they may call themselves Christians and worship this invisible God. So let's start kind of suppressing them. Let's start shutting them up a little bit. 200 AD, 
we have this man named Tertullian, and he writes um, what is called an apology. It's not him apologizing to the Roman government. It's just him saying, here's some things that you need to get in check, and here's some things that you need to know about us. So here's what he says to the Romans who are persecuting him as a Christian, as a recent convert. He says, without ceasing for all our emperors, we offer prayer. We pray for life prolonged, for security to the empire, for protection to the imperial house, for brave armies, a faithful senate, a virtuous people, the world at rest, whatever as a man or Caesar an emperor would wish. These things I cannot ask from any but the God from whom I know I shall obtain them, both because he alone bestows them and because I have claims upon him for their gift as being a servant of his, rendering homage to him alone, persecuted for his doctrine. Now, I'm done reading boring stuff, so I promise you that's it. But what we have from there from Tertullian is a person who is being persecuted by the Romans and he writes them something saying, I'm praying for you. These two individuals from history, from our lineage, now consider this. They were Christians. We're Christians. We're the same people. We get to look into a window of history to see how they were responding to persecution and how they were fulfilling this role of all things to all men. So, now we go back to our text in 1 Corinthians. And I, and I want to bring up this question again. What value is the gospel to you? And what are you willing to do for the gospel? If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you've got your iPhones or your Samsung Galaxy or whatever, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll kind of start there. And what we're going to do is mainly stay in 1 Corinthians. And, and what I want to do for you is, is make this as painless as possible for a lecture. Because I know when I was a teenager, I saw the word lecture and I was automatically tuned out. I had, and I'm not even going to tell you my GPA because I don't want to encourage bad behavior in high school. I had a horrible GPA in high school. Um, absolutely terrible. I missed more school than anyone else. Um, so don't follow in my example. But I know what it's like to sit in those pews. Um, and, and sit in those chairs and think, oh man, here's another boring person up there rambling on about whatever. But this is cool stuff. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and, verse, and chapter 9. Um, and so I'm going to make this as painless as possible. We're going to look at five ways, five ways that Paul was able to take all things to all men and implement it into his life. And from that, hopefully at the end of this lesson, um, we can kind of see those five different ways, incorporate them into our own lives, and truly become people who are all things to all men that we might save some. Number one, Paul fortified love. Paul fortified love. Our main text comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, but the main text has to have some sort of context. You've probably heard that word a thousand times like I have this weekend, but context is really important. We have to back up a little bit to understand where Paul is coming from in order to say, I'm all things to all men. Because here's the thing. Sometimes we take scriptures and we use them out of context. Uh, for example, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, or Romans chapter 8, verse 28 uh, for all things work together for those who love God. Okay? Well, that's speaking within the context of Romans chapter 8. We must understand that context to understand that it's not literally, hey, I'm a Christian now, everything's going to go great for me. Um, so, same with this one. Context really dictates the definition of what it means to become all things to all men. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, we see that Paul fortified love, and he says, knowledge is that which puffs up, but love builds up. We're going to see if that does it again. If it does, then we'll just cancel it out. I think we're good. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
Now, what Paul is saying here within the context of Romans chapter 8 is rewind back to the first century, right? So as, as much as we can conceive in the first century, no technology, no modern housing, everything is kind of archaic and, and primitive. Uh, but also what's very interesting is in this time of Corinth, you've got all these different structures, all these different massive temples made out of granite and marble and these beautiful structures. And people were going to these temples, these structures, and they were offering food sacrifice to idols. Um, now what that means is they were having a big barbecue, for lack of better terms, right? They would bring some calves, they'd bring some cows, they'd bring whatever it was, and they would, well, I'll keep things <laughs> very G-rated. Um, they would take these animals, they'd kill them, uh, short, condensed version, and then they would offer it up on a sacrifice or on an altar. They'd light a fire under it, and then those fumes, that smoke was drifting over to the Christians who don't offer food to idols. And these Christians around noon, would smell this food, this barbecue, and they'd think, man, that smells wonderful. You ever driven by a restaurant and you think, that smells so good, I'm going to stop in there. We go down Wadsworth on our way to our house. I like Burger King. My wife does not like Burger King, um, and I smell Burger King. I don't know what it is, but they always have that chimney, and it's putting out that Burger King smoke. Um, and I always think, man, that smells good, and I want to stop in there, but I don't. Well, these Christians smelled this food, and they'd go over to these different temples, and they'd kind of slide in there, and they'd think, this free food. They just left it here as, an, as a sacrifice. No one's touching this. And so they'd help themselves. They would take the sacrifice, they'd take it home, and they'd start eating this food. Now, what does that do for the person who is worshiping their idol? They're thinking, are you kidding me? You just took our sacrifice, and you took it home as a free potluck for yourself. You can't do that. Now, Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, is going to be talking about, here's the deal, Christians. We have to surrender some liberties. We know as Christians that there's only one God. Uh, and even though there is only one God, we know that this God does not partake in these animal sacrifices anymore, right? Christ came to do away with all those animal sacrifices. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 4. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, we know. We have that knowledge. We're educated enough to see that God doesn't delight in these things. We're Christians. We're free from this type of rule. But keep on reading. Uh, verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Again, he's just talking about the pagans and how they worship. Verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what's the problem, Paul? Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So Paul is talking about, there are these people in this world who are taking sacrifices and offering them, but we don't need to be those type of people who are going and stealing those. So Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love is the thing that's going to build up. So Paul says, even though you have this good education, trash it and just stick with love. Paul also fortified his love in chapter 8 and verse 11. Notice what he says there, by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. Even though you have this Christian liberty of being able to eat this meat freely, you don't have to do it. Because when you do it, you destroy someone's faith. Um, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 3 says, If anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
Going back to the first one, knowledge puffs up, but, but love builds up. So the first way that Paul was, was a person of all things to all men is by fortifying his love. He didn't care if there was a free barbecue down the road. He didn't care if there was a possession that he knew that he could have as a Christian to have this freedom. He realized, I'm going to sacrifice that. I'm going to put that away. And I'm going to show love to these people by not indulging in that. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians? It means that we're going to run into some people who have some different beliefs, right? Um, I had a Jewish friend in high school. We were great friends. We did BMX biking together. Um, His name was Tyler, too. He is a redhead. We liked each other because his name was Tyler. Um, But he was a Jew, and so things were a little bit different for him. I remember we'd go to restaurants, and he'd have to order kosher stuff, uh, things that were fit for a Jew to eat. He couldn't eat bacon or pork, and I was thinking, man, I don't want to be a part of that religion. Um, But it was my duty as a person, as a friend, to not show my liberties and shove it in his face. You will have friends, you will make friends who have traditions and different things in their background, and you can't say, oh, you're so wrong. Let me show you what's right. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge will puff you up, and knowledge will destroy relationships quicker than lightning, but love builds up. Now, I want to kind of give you a little illustration of how this works. Uh, In the science community, you have potential and kinetic energy. Potential energy is almost like a spring. If you were to take a massive spring and condense it down, you've got potential energy stored up in this spring. If you release that spring to, to cause it to be animated or to move, then you have kinetic energy. Right? Some of you have already learned that. Some of you will learn that. Um, hate to break it, but gen eds are kind of boring. Uh, sometimes they work their way into illustrations, though. What we need as Christians is kinetic love, not potential love. Here's the deal about that. Is sometimes we know what's right, but we don't do it. That's potential love. Kinetic love is knowing what's right, knowing what we should do, and acting on that and causing our brothers and sisters to feel more welcome. Number two, Paul forfeited liberties. I know this is kind of a weird way of phrasing it. Liberties, you're probably thinking of Liberty Mutual or the Statue of Liberty. Um, I didn't really grow to understand or appreciate liberty until recently. But Paul forfeited these liberties, these freedoms. And the first way that he did it is he said, I've made my ser- or myself a servant to all. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 19. There, Paul is talking, kind of keeping on with this theme of... of watching out for these different people. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself. Not that he developed into this, but he made himself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. If you're big into Bible marking, um, that's awesome. I wish I was at a younger age. But trace this thread of win. Because when we look at this word for win, we see it in verse 19. We see it in verse 20 twice. We see it in verse 21. We see it in verse 22. Plainly, Paul was one who loved to win. I don't know if there's anyone in here that just gets fired up about losing. Um, I'm on my fantasy football team. Both teams or both fantasy leagues have lost two weeks in a row. And that irritates the fire out of me more than probably what it should. But I hate losing. What is Paul talking about here about winning? Not winning fantasy football, not winning a fight, not winning anything like that, but winning more souls for God. And so when we consider what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 19, he forfeited his freedoms. He made himself a servant to all that he might win more of them. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26, Jesus uses the same word for win, this victory word. And he says, if he wins the whole world or if he gains the whole world, same word though, even it's different in translation. If he wins the whole world, 
and forfeits his soul. What is the value? What's it worth if you're going to win everything? But if you lose your soul, we should be a people who want to win, uh, win souls, and obviously win our soul and keep it won over for God. William Barclay is a commentator. He's got a great quote on this. He says, the man who can never see anything but his own point of view, who is completely intolerant, who totally lacks the gift of sympathy, who never makes any attempt to understand the mind and the heart of others, will never make a pastor or an evangelist or even a friend. Now, you probably take those first two words, pastor, evangelist, you know, who cares? But this person who, who carries these characteristics will never make a friend. In order to make friends, we must be a people who understand that we sometimes have to forego or forfeit the things that we have that make us who we are. Notice that Paul said, I made myself, I was not a person like this, but I made myself a servant to all. Let's keep on moving. Third, Paul forgot his pursuits. Uh, if you read chapters like Philippians chapter 3, we know that Paul was a very um, decorated man when it came to his resume. Um, I don't know if you've ever made a resume. Probably not. Maybe you have. I don't know. Um, but resumes are an important thing because it shows you, hey, here's what I've accomplished in life. Here's what I need to do. When I was in high school, my resume was I won junior camper of the year at Camp Coronia in 2007. And I worked at Perry's Pizza as a delivery boy. Um, but that was, hey, I was proud of that. Paul took his pursuits and his possessions and everything that he worked for in Philippians chapter 3, and he counted it as loss. He counted it as rubbish. The, the wordage there in Philippians chapter 3 is very interesting because he goes through. He talks about, I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm a, I'm a Jew for the zealousness of the law. Um, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which, by the way, who else is from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul, the first king of Israel. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, sometimes we have pretty cool family members. I don't have any, uh, but sometimes we come from a cool lineage like Saul uh, or Paul. And he said, hey, I'm of the same tribe that the first king of Israel was from. I've done all these things. And then Paul left out some other things that he did. He was studied under uh, Gamaliel, who was regarded as one of the greatest influences in the first century in Judaism. He says, I studied under him and I count them all as garbage, as refuse, as manure. Literally, in the Greek New Testament. Um, and notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 20, what he says. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And then he keeps on going. He says, to those outside the law became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And verse 22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul is saying, you see that person, I became like them. Now, here's one thing about that. Everett Harrison would say, the principle that Paul exposed, which, boring word, the principle that Paul gained was mobility in methods, not mobility in morals. Paul was not saying to the partiers, I became a partier. I went out. It was awesome. Paul's not saying that at all. Paul's not saying to the poor, oh, I, I threw away everything and I, and I just am homeless now and I have, I have no pursuit of anything else. Paul's not saying that at all. Paul is saying what I did in my life was I became like them. Not one of them, but like them. I started understanding who they were, where their background was, 
and I wanted to be that way in order that I might save them. He was not uh, sacrificing or giving up his moral standard. The next way that Paul incorporated all things to all men is that Paul followed Jesus' example. When we look at passages like Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 through 8, we see that Christ himself is the one who emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus set the standard of the phrase, all things to all men. What Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is simply a reflection on what Jesus has done for Paul himself. Uh, if you're familiar with Paul's conversion story, it's pretty crazy, right? Where here's Paul, he's walking down this random road, or not a random road, but one of the main highways. They didn't have Mustangs back then. They just had Shubaroos. And they were walking down to Jerusalem. Um, and uh, that was a good one. Uh, walking down, down this road, and all of a sudden he sees a bright light in heaven, right? How many, how many has that happened to you? Not, it hasn't happened to any of us. See this bright light in heaven. He's astounded. And Jesus himself speaks to Paul, Saul at the time. He got a cool name change. Speaks to Saul at the time and says, Paul, why are you hurting my church? Why are you killing my church? Well, how do you answer that? Here you are, your main vocation, your main job is persecuting the Christian church as a Jew. And now Jesus, who's Lord of the earth, is speaking to you in such a miraculous way. And then all of a sudden, these, uh, these, these scales is what the scripture says. These scales came over Paul's eyes. I mean, it's quite the tragedy for him. And then he goes blind for a while. And then we have Ananias in Acts chapter 12, who is called by God, and, and God says to Ananias, hey, you know that Saul guy? Ananias goes, yeah. You know that guy who's trying to kill every Christian that he comes in contact with? Yeah. Go convert him. Excuse me? Ananias is now tasked with the, with the duty of going and, and talking to Saul and saying, hey, Saul, have you heard of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? But he goes up and he starts talking with Saul and eventually uh, he goes through this conversion process. He's baptized and he, he walks with Christ in a new life. The person who was once literally killing Christians, someone came in here and started killing Christians. That person who was persecuting Christians is now confessing, Jesus is my Lord. I'm one of you guys. Think about this for a moment. What was it like for Paul to walk in the doors of the first assembly that he was as a Christian. Can you imagine that? As a persecutor of the church, as one who has killed people in the area, family members or friends, and now this man has to go to church on Sunday morning, has to see the saints. What was that assembly like? Everyone kind of looks back and sees Saul. They have to do a double take. And now Saul is becoming one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament. The Spirit of God is moving through him to write these things. And now Saul is saying, I am making myself a servant. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, there we see that Jesus is one who came to seek and save the lost. He's the one who became a servant to all that he might save the world. Jesus is the one who took on the form of a servant. Jesus is the one who came not to be served, but to serve. In the Gospel of Mark's words, Jesus is the one who first used this idea of I'm becoming all things to all men. Why? Not just for the sake of it, not just to win friends, but that he might save some. Also notice that in the first part of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul says, have this mind among you. 
have this psychology, have this method of thinking among yourselves. All right, fifth and last, we're already at point five. Paul found his purpose by invoking in himself this attitude of all things to all men. He found purpose. It took me a little while to find purpose in life. My purpose, graduating high school, was I'm going to make as much money as I can. And some follow that same path, and I figured, okay, eight months of trade school, and I'm out, minimal debt, uh, working on an oil rig somewhere. Oil riggers make about $250 an hour. That should be good enough. Uh, underwater welders make about $30,000 a month. So, hey, that sounds good to me. That was my pursuit. Paul talked about people like that. In Philippians chapter 3, we already looked at Philippians chapter 3. He says, their God is their belly. Not that uh, your belly becomes this now deified idol, uh, but that your appetite, the thing that you hunger for, the thing that you thirst for, the thing that you are pursuing in your life, that becomes your God. And Paul warned the readers in Philippians, the church in Philippi, he says, I write this with tears in my eyes. Tears in my eyes. That I have to inform you that those who once walked in the cross are now walking as enemies of their cross. Their God is their belly. Their end is their shame. Paul talked about people like me. Paul said you were an enemy of the cross. Your God was your belly. And guess what, Tyler? Where you're headed is shame and destruction. And Paul could relate to that too. He says, I am the chief of sinners in Romans. Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. If you were to add them up. And I can't imagine the guilt that Paul dealt with day by day. Um, And yet Jesus saved him. And so now Paul takes this gospel and he starts spreading it everywhere. And he starts preaching it. And he starts going into hostile countries. Did you know that there are still countries today where if you went and preached that Jesus is God, that there is only one God, that they would kill you. Paul went headfirst into those countries and he started preaching Jesus. And as a result, he was a martyr. He was one who was killed for his faith by the Romans um, under an emperor. But Paul says, I'm going to be all things to all men that I might save some. Paul found his purpose in this mission. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 23. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them and its blessings. Now, there's two things that I want you to note here. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. The good news. I do it all for the good news that Jesus gave me. I do it all for the things that Jesus has done for my life. And he says, that I might share with them and it's blessing. Sometimes Christianity, and, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, by the way. When I was growing up, I was guilty because I was like, man, Christianity is just a constant burden where I'm constantly giving and giving and giving. And there's nothing really in return. There's this thing about heaven, but I don't even know what heaven is. I don't know if I'm going to be this spiritual orb just floating around for eternity, singing praises to God. That doesn't sound that enticing. Um, and, and you kind of fall victim to this mindset of Christianity is such a burden. And I don't want to do this. Well, this being the last point, I didn't want to end it on a, on a bad note. And Paul didn't either. He says that I might share with them in its burdens. No. Now, there are other scriptures talking about sharing and suffering, but that's a different point. That I might share with them in its chores. No. That I might share with them in their poverty. No, that I might share with them in their blessing. By being all things to all men, we bless others and we bless ourselves. I'll tell you that firsthand. By becoming all things to all men, we become a blessing to others and we bless ourselves. Now you might be thinking, oh great, here we go. There's spiritual blessings like peace and thankfulness and and charity and everything else. But Paul 
grew to have some of the greatest friends that he ever had. The church in Thessalonica, if you ever read First and Second Thessalonians, this was almost Paul's favorite church. You're not supposed to have a favorite church, by the way, but everyone does, and that's okay. Paul had his favorite. The church in Thessalonica, Paul would consider, you are my glory and you're my joy. Paul loved visiting the church in Thessalonica. They had uh, problems, but they were seldom ever anything that were great. A magnitude, you can tell, because the letters are a little bit shorter. And Paul just wanted to encourage the church, hey, you guys are doing great. And I'm commending you for everything that you're doing. You're doing great. And you are my glory and you're my joy. And just keep your minds on the resurrection. You're, you're doing good. But Paul considered them my glory, my joy. It was Paul's blessing because this was his church. This was his family. This was his pride and joy. We get friends in the gospel. Think about that. If you removed the gospel from this world, from this life, where would you be? Well, not here tonight. And after the last 40 minutes, you might be thinking that would have been a blessing, but that's okay. You might be thinking, I would probably be at home, maybe playing video games, maybe eating dinner. I'm not sure. But we're here tonight, and we have friends. Obviously, you're sitting with your friends. We have relationships. My wife and I grew up in the youth group together. Without the gospel, I wouldn't be married. Without the gospel, I wouldn't have friends that I can call at 1 a.m. Without the gospel, I wouldn't be going to different countries and, and having family over there. Without the gospel, our relationships would be decimated, absolutely destroyed. And Paul said one of the greatest blessings of the gospel that it is it brought me to you. <laughs> Number two, one of the blessings that we have is that we have this mutual encouragement with others. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 12, that I might be encouraged as well. There's a mutual encouragement that goes on. We have rough weeks. We have rough days. We have rough years. Uh, last year is a testimony to that. And yet we can come to the assembly. We can go to the saints outside of the assembly too, believe it or not. Kind of a crazy concept. But we can see each other outside of the assembly and we can get encouragement. We can say, you know what? It doesn't even matter in the grand scheme of things because I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven and I'm going to be resurrected. And this life is just a vapor. And we could be mutually encouraged by those thoughts. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 3, he had a reason to be thankful. He wrote to them and he says, I am thankful to you, God, or to you, to God in my prayers. Every time that I remember you, I'm thankful for you in my prayers to God. Paul was also considering the blessing of family. One of the greatest things about Colossians chapter 4 is at the very tail end of Colossians, verses 7 through 12, you see all these people brought up by first name individual basis. And Paul saw that there was a family there that was waiting for him, that had been working with him, and that were there until the day he died. By becoming all things to all men, we become sharers, we become uh, fellowship, we come into this communion of blessing. We have this common bond that is preceding us to God. So I want to ask you again, what is the value of the gospel in your life? What are you willing to pay for the gospel? Now, some people, in an old boring book that you may have to read for grad school, some people had to go to the arena and be killed for the sake of the gospel. Uh, hopefully that doesn't happen in our life. And I don't think it will. It'll ever come to that. That was quite the time in human history, probably one of the darkest times in human history. But what are you willing to give for the gospel? I want to follow that up with another question. Are you willing to give up your mentality, your pride, or your ego for the gospel? Now that sounds like quite the sacrifice, but I promise you, by becoming all things to all men, we win. We win more souls to God. We become sharers in the blessings of the gospel. 
we have all those different blessings of the gospel and we find our purpose in this life of communing God's gospel to those who are lost. It's a no-lose situation by becoming all things to all men that we might save some. You never know the impact that you'll have in your life. You don't have to be a preacher to be a preacher. You don't have to be a minister to show people the gospel. Sometimes all it takes is your life, your actions. That was Peter's uh, main emphasis in 1 Peter chapter 3, was your actions can save people. So I want to ask you, and I want to leave you with, with this question. What is the value of the gospel, and what are you willing to give up for the gospel that you might become all things to all men? Thanks for your time. I appreciate it.